Awesome. So I hope you didn't come hungry because we'll just be talking about food, right? Is that okay? Speaking of hungry, uh, yeah, I like food, and so I think it's a gift from Jesus. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna say that's the case and move on with it all. Especially bread. He broke bread a lot, so I like bread, and it's not good for me, but I eat it. So there right? All that. Anyway, we're, we're excited you guys are here. We're going to jump into this uh, first week, which we would call Grace in a Meal. The big idea today is Jesus came eating and drinking to give grace to all. And, and we'll dive into a couple different segments of passages that'll help us discover that. The primary one is an occurrence where Jesus called a, we talked about this last week, we talked about Zacchaeus a tax guy, right? We're talking about Levi, the tax guy, this week. So Luke 5, 27 says this. Later, as Jesus left the town, he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Later, Levi held a banquet in his home with Jesus as the guest of honor. Many of Levi's fellow tax collectors and other guests also ate with them. But the Pharisees and their teachers of religious law complained bitterly. That's pretty descriptive, right? They complained bitterly to Jesus' disciples. Why do you eat and drink with such scum? Jesus answered them, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. I've come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners and need to repent. They know they are sinners and need to repent. Man, do you know you are a sinner? Or maybe you know someone who's a sinner. I'll make it less personal. I'm like... Yeah, it looks like I, I look in the mirror every day. I shaved today, so I was very close up with the sinner right there in the mirror, right? Uh, do you know you need to repent or someone who needs to repent? It's, it's kind of what's being put to us right here. When is the last time you ate a meal with someone who was a sinner or needs to repent? Carol Steele in the book Hungry City how food shapes our lives says this few acts are more expressive of companionship than the shared meal someone with whom we share food is likely to be our friend or well on the way to becoming one when reading through the gospel books we see jesus eating and drinking with tons of people but we also see a phrase that kind of leads up to that discovery. We see this descriptor that says, the Son of Man came, blah, 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 right? And if you read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you kind of look at those phrases, the Son of Man came, you find kind of three common phrases. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many, it says in Mark ten forty five. So he came to serve, not be served. That's one thing we see. We see the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. We read about that last week. Seek and save the lost. 
and the Son of Man came, or has come, eating and drinking. So you have these two phrases, he's come to serve, he's come to seek, which are more mission-based, like that's his mission. But then you have Jesus' method, eating and drinking. Very interesting to kind of just look at it through that lens and say, man, Jesus' method of touching people's lives and connecting with people and growing a relationship with people was to sit down and eat a meal with them, to share drink with them. Jesus was accused of eating and drinking too much because he did it so much. And that's kind of the inspiration of this series, actually a book entitled A Meal with Jesus, if you want to go download that for nine bucks and read it on your Kindle app on your phone like I do. Or if you like books, you can spend $6 more. But anyway, the, uh, you know, if you like the paper in your hand and, and killing trees and stuff, feel free, no, whatever. There might be a used version in paperback that's similar to the digital price. But, uh, you know, just I'm reading through this book, which is kind of how we're breaking down this series, and it's the inspired source, if you will. It's, it's so interesting to see how often, when you really get into the study of it, how often Jesus ate and sat down for a meal with those that may be considered enemies. So that's where this serious tension comes in with the religious people of the day. Like a massive tension that you could feel in the phrase, you know, complained bitterly. Or the accusation here, scum. Maybe your Bible translation says, why would you eat with such sinners? Now, interestingly... If you look at the context of this whole Luke 5, 27 through 32, Jesus did not call them scum or sinners. Jesus called them other guests. Interesting perspective on people, isn't it? Like the Son of God would view everybody there as guests. But people and their prejudice and their religious spirit and their legalism and all the other stuff there were like scum, sinner. That doesn't feel good when you're on the receiving end at all. I've been there. They truly believed that, though. Like these religious rulers of the day truly 100% believed. The Pharisees, the teachers of the law, believed that those others that were sitting around the table were sinners and scum. They literally had become so secluded from normal living in life that, that like just because they were so practicing their faith, they were so holy that to associate with anybody like this was just like not 100% not acceptable because who knows, they may become unclean. They may become outside of the ability to practice their faith. So this is where their root of bitterness comes from, is like, how can Jesus claim to be who he is and and do this? Like, this is going to ruin our religious culture. Eating and drinking meant a bunch of things in Jesus' culture. Eating and drinking together in someone's home, as we just read a couple quotes, was a sign of friendship. It was a sign of unity. 
with someone else. So you could see, man, similar to Bible times, uh, we spent 30 days in Indonesia. Our family did a few years back. And we would go into different homes and, and have meals and eat random stuff you don't get to eat in America. It was kind of fun for an adventurous eater like me. But we went to one specific missionary's home. And uh, it was in some other city uh, other than Surabaya where we were based out of. And they brought us in. And the, the front room, like the entry was huge. And I was like, you know, there's chairs in it. There's seats in it. And they started to explain one of the Indonesian cultures. It's very similar to Bible times was you would have an entryway where you would kind of sit down and talk and discover, where am I at with this person that's entering my home? Where's the friendship level? Where's the, you know, it, it, is this person safe? Maybe you would have an entire time or meeting in that room. You would never go beyond it. But then there was like the main huge, like, living room or, or you know, family room, whatever you'd call it. And, and if you kind of got past that entry room in relationship with one another, maybe on a second visit or third visit, you would be invited into this main space where you might sit down and, and, and have a drink together or whatever. But then if you're really close, you would be invited for a meal. And they would set the table for you. And they invited us for a meal. And I'll never forget it because there are certain things you just couldn't get or couldn't eat in Indonesia. And one was salad. Now, I won't touch a salad when I'm home in America, right? It's like salad, hamburger, hamburger, please. You know, it's like, uh, you know, whatever. Uh, I'll go back to bread. Uh, yeah, French bread, please. That'd be awesome. You know, but salad, okay. You know, but it was this crisp, amazing salad with, like, tomatoes on it. And we're, like, going crazy over a salad. We didn't think it was quite far into the 30 days there. We felt like we'd been on Survivor Island or something. You know, you're just like, oh get to eat and but we had made it to the table of friendship really interesting because in scriptural times in Jesus time it was the same thing man he called he was called a glutton he was called a drunkard he was called a friend of tax collectors and sinners why because he ate with them he was invited all the way to the table So it's very interesting what the Pharisees respond to this. They're bitterly complaining. Mark Batterson, a great author, uh, speaker, writer, pastor of the theater churches in Washington, D.C., and, and uh, an incredible vision mission uh, for their church and the globe, writes often in his books and kind of has this culture within their church that says, thou shalt offend Pharisees. Well, what is he saying with that? Thou shalt offend Pharisees. It sounds like I'm going to go out and my objective is to offend people. Well, kind of, yeah. What does he mean? He's going to love people that are so messy and so ordinary and so not mainline religious culture that religious people are probably going to be upset with where their people are at. And so he's like, thou shalt offend Pharisees. I'm going to love people. I'm going to befriend people. I'm going to sit at the table with people in such a way that the religious elite may get upset. Because they know if they're going to reach people that haven't been reached, they need to go places that haven't been gone to. 
pretty bold culture. And when doing God's will, there's always going to be well-intended complainers that are around us. Right? It's because religion tends to lean towards man's rules and regulations for holiness, like this great desire versus people's need for salvation. We kind of keep our holiness versus share the love. And we want to open ourselves up to share the love. Eating and drinking were so important in the mission of Jesus because they were this sign of friendship, embrace, love, welcome. Meals are more than food. They're social occasions. They represent friendship, community, welcome. Listen to a bit of a culture insight from an author that wrote a book called Table Fellowship Dictionary of Jesus and the Gospels. He's, he says this, It would be difficult to overestimate the importance of table fellowship for the cultures of the Mediterranean basin in the first century of our era. Meal times were far more than occasions for individuals to consume nourishment. Being welcomed at a table for the purpose of eating food with another person had become a ceremony richly symbolic of friendship, intimacy, and unity. Thus, betrayal or unfaithfulness towards anyone with whom one had shared the table was viewed as particularly reprehensible. On the other hand, when persons were estranged, a meal invitation opened the way to reconciliation. So it's pretty important. And we got three thoughts today that we really feel will help us understand the grace that comes through a meal with each other. Grace, the first thought, grace determines the guest list. Grace determines the guest list. The Jews, and specifically the religious rulers over the Jews, had become so stringent about their faith. In fact, the priests, the Pharisees, the religious teachers had brought home the regulations put on them throughout the Old Testament that you could read about, the way food had to be prepared, the way they had to clean themselves before they ate, all these regulations and rules. They had brought it home with them to their families. And their families had begun then to practice the right way of cooking, the right way of eating, you know, this kosherness. They began to, to practice all these things. And therefore, their associated friends that they had over for food began to practice the same way so they didn't offend one another at the table. And it started to spread that this culture of, of elite eaters together, you know, people that would fellowship, they, they became secluded. They became this this secluded kind of a right people that everybody else couldn't associate with because they practiced such a stringent pattern of rule around the table that people were not allowed to sit at a table with them. Uh, they couldn't be in the place of honor that they were in. And this temple became such a separate, exclusive experience. But that was never God's heart. God's heart's always been an inclusive experience where everybody can come that nobody would perish. Jesus came to this earth for. So really interesting the tension that they have to work through here. We understand careful eating and, and that's exactly what the, the Jews and religious rulers had, had brought 
into practice, right? This careful, stringent eating. And we understand that in the Huff home. Because in the Huff home, my last name's Huff, those of you who don't know me. Uh, but the Huff home, we have a peanut allergy. So we have to become very aware of, like, the peanut reality. And now Preston's six, so he kind of can figure some things out himself. We carry the EpiPen. We're not sure how bad the peanut allergy is. We haven't ever said, okay, it's test time. Eat this spoon of peanut butter. Watch it. You know? No, we haven't done that. Not planning on it anytime soon. But he hasn't had peanut butter. Poor little dude, right? It's like, come on. That's like, isn't that, like, that's part of life. But anyway, he has not had a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. He hasn't had peanut butter on his ice cream, melted at 10 o'clock at night with some chocolates. Okay, never mind. Um, it's not good for you. Don't do that. It's delicious. Tillamook, little Tillamook ice cream, a little melted peanut butter. Okay, moving on. I'm totally distracted now and salivating. Uh, basically, it means that we can't even, like, make PBJ on the counter and, you know, we always make sure we do the jelly first. Don't touch anything that's been near the peanut butter. We still have peanut butter in our house, which is kind of like Russian roulette probably, you know. And uh, so we're, we're just really careful. You know, we wipe the counters down, and we, just, we try not to expose him to peanuts. But he's probably been close to it. He can't have any tree nuts, right? Um, and so, or food that was processed with nuts. So, like, 50% of food says may have been prepared in a factory with nuts, he doesn't eat that. I mean, he just came to me this week with this bag of animal crackers and said, Dad, can I eat this? And I looked at the ingredients. It looked pretty good. But then there was this little black print, which I had to get these little glasses that I wear every once in a while to read. And as I'm reading it, he's, it says, may contain peanut butter and tree nuts. I'm like, nope, better not, unless you have your EpiPen in your hand, right? It's like, so he's like, no, thank you. So we are always asking, we're always clarifying. The other week, we were just going to treat all the kids. We show up to a donut place. Um, I don't want to say who they are because, you know, don't, don't want to point them out or anything. But they make some pretty legendary donuts. But anyway, we were at this place getting donuts. And uh, we saw in their cabinet, you know, we realized, oh, man, some of these donuts have, like, nuts on them. So we better ask. Do you have donuts that weren't exposed to nuts and they're like no we pretty much use the same like trays to make all the donuts and don't necessarily wash them in between and so here's the dilemma right we're sitting there as a family going we're all here to get a treat we're all salivating over like the oprah and these other donuts that are like massive and going to make us huge. And we're just going, we cannot do this. And yet, uh, poor little Preston's going to have to skip out. So Dana, being an amazing mother, said, well, honey, I won't have a donut either. Pressure's on, right? There's four of us left in our house. To, we're making a tough decision here. Do we become really legalistic and make all of us practice the law of no nuts? Or do we experience the tension of some of us partaking and some of us not, given the fact that we were all incredibly compassionate towards Preston. Four of us had donuts and two didn't. And uh, it's just kind of the way we roll in our house. Uh, 
He's a big boy, and he had a great time. He wasn't like over in the corner crying because there were nuts on some donuts, and he was a really good kid. And, uh, and I just, you know, so we felt a little guilty. Every bite of that massive glazed donut I ate in two seconds was, you know, just, no, we didn't feel guilty. But the Jews and the Pharisees would have played fair. They would have, they would have played the fair card. And said, it's only fair if nobody has anything with nuts in it ever again because of Preston. And that's what they had done with the law. They said, hey, if anybody's going to be reconciled to God, they're going to have to live like the priests. Which was never God's command. And so they had just said, nobody gets a donut. And then they make up another rule, and then they make up another rule... And Jesus shows up and eats at places you can't eat and be close to God. There's no way this can be the guy that's going to reconcile us to God. That's why they were freaking out and whining and bitter, throwing tantrums. Now, it didn't happen. But if I would have said to maybe the older two girls in our home or the girl that's nine in our home we're all not going to have donuts there may have been a tantrum it'd be the opposite of the pharisees the tantrum would have been from those that could eat the donut it's not fair right would have come out on the table and and that's what's happening in the culture with religious rule and jesus shows up on the scene kicks back at the table and starts to eat and befriend People that should be making him impure according to the religious rulers' laws. The Jews extended this law so stringently that they felt we need to excommunicate anybody who doesn't obey it. Another quote from an eating book says, In all cultures, meals represent boundary markers. They mark the boundaries between different levels of intimacy and acceptance. So we have another occurrence. Luke eleven thirty seven, Jesus was speaking and one of the Pharisees invited him home for a meal. So now a religious ruler is inviting Jesus for a meal. So he went in and took his place at the table. His host was amazed to see that he sat down to eat without first performing the hand washing ceremony. Is that what you call it in your home? The hand washing ceremony, kids. Come on into the, I saw what you just picked with that finger. Hand washing ceremony time. Come on. Get in there and do that. But there's a hand washing ceremony required by Jewish custom. Then the Lord said to him, you Pharisees are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're filthy, full of greed and wickedness. Fools, didn't God make the inside as well as the outside? So clean the inside by giving gifts to the poor, and you'll be clean all over. Jesus just kind of laid some smack down at that table, called them fools, said you're sinful on the inside. I mean, who wants a shiny cup, but on the inside, nasty, dirty. Our dishwasher is kind of fully, I think it's finally kicked the bucket. I've, I, I don't repair things, but I've repaired it. 
a couple times, which probably is the problem. But it's now not cleaning on the inside of dishes. The outside's looking good, but you look on the inside and you're going, is this like white film healthy for me to eat off of? Because this looks like it's going to like bleach my teeth or something. You know, it's just really gross. And you're like, sure, yeah, sure, it's clean. Eat off that. It's sugar or something, you know, but it's soap. It's totally dried soap. But you're trying to figure out how do we like get the inside of these things clean. Well, Jesus is spiritual vision looking at these Pharisees going, yeah, you look shiny and clean on the outside. You guys are robbing people. You're forcing people to do things that never intended to do. You're filthy on the inside. You're, you fooled yourselves. And it's like an insult to him. He's just calling them out. They created boundaries, these eating boundaries, these hand-washing ceremonies. These are some examples of things that the poor just could not accomplish in their day. So they had made so many rules that there was a whole class of their culture that couldn't practice them. They're like, I, I can't look good enough to show up at your temple. I can't uh, behave good enough because I can't afford the water to clean my hands appropriately or cook in a manner that is considered clean. So now I can't live the same way you guys live. And so this whole class of elite religious people that could look down on other cultures existed. And honestly, it's carried on for generations, hasn't it? It sounds familiar, and we still have these obstacles out there, but God has been trying to tear down since Jesus showed up on the scene. Today's Pharisees might look like those condemning the poor for their dysfunctional families. They might, Pharisee might look at alcoholics and condemn them because of their excessive drinking. While I have a fancy wine, they're drinking that. Bud Light or whatever. I have no idea, you know. Uh, or they're condemning people for their abortions but not lifting a finger to adopt. Or maybe a Pharisee would point the finger of judgment to a, uh, our schools and unruly students that are there but not take the time to volunteer and be a healthy adult example in the lives of those that don't have the presence of an adult in their life. They'll condemn the LGBT community, but lack purity, commitment, and faithfulness in their own relationship to demonstrate the power of biblical unity. Man, you could go on, couldn't you? You get where we're going. We can't condemn pockets of people or distance ourselves from them. That's prejudice. That's legalism. We must come alongside those who are hurting, demonstrating the transforming grace of God. Eat with them. Have a meal with them. God will work out these things in their life. We're for people. We're for the community we're not standing in opposition against people or pointing at them. Jesus is showing what Paul affirms in his instruction to Timothy in, verse, uh, in 1 Timothy 5.21. It's not on your screen or in your notes, so you might just jot it down if you're filling out the handout. 
He says this, I solemnly command you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus and the highest angels to obey these instructions without taking sides or showing favoritism to anyone. The Pharisees had begun to show favoritism to a select culture that could practice their way of law. And Jesus is handing out the party invitations for everybody to come and sit at the table with him. They don't say, get clean, then come. They say, come and get clean. That's the heart of God. So thought two, grace turns everything upside down. Or maybe we could say, right side up. Maybe you have sympathy for the Pharisees. It's understandable. I mean, when you think about it, some of what the Pharisees were doing makes sense. It's great to keep ourselves pure, to keep ourselves holy. How can Jesus come from God if he's eating with God's enemies and thus communicating a message of unity with people that aren't practicing godly stuff? It's confusing. It's painting with gray. And they want black and white so that they can check the right boxes to make it to heaven. You can understand their idea and why it makes sense. The Pharisees have been flipping everything upside down with their religious rule for generations. But God's doing something that feels new to them and ultimately is flipping everything right side up. Jesus isn't rejecting the purity laws of Leviticus or the generations of religious interpretation of them because they were wrong. He's fulfilling them. He said with his very own word and actions. He's loving his neighbor. The cleansing they were desiring to take place through all these laws and rules was actually going to take place in the friendship with Jesus. The grace of God through a relationship. There's an old way and a new way. And Jesus' grace is turning everything right side up through this new way of celebrating with a meal. The new way is kind, full of mercy, gracious rather than religious, inclusive rather than exclusive, welcoming rather than unwelcoming, hospitable versus hostile, characterized by feasts rather than fasting, rejoicing rather than grumbling, recognizes its need and finds hope in the Savior rather than feeling self-righteous and therefore rejecting the Savior. It's spelt out in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You can read all about it. Jesus' accusation against the Pharisees at Levi's party was that they were asking him to behave like a doctor who couldn't perform surgery. He he said, "You're, you're treating me like a doctor that should avoid sick people. Imagine if your surgeon, if you were having to go in for a surgery and your surgeon can only stand outside the glass window looking into the operating room and every once in a while point out what's going wrong and shout out a suggestion. You know what I would, no, the old man would not have cut that big one, that big artery. That, that, the bleeding's not normal. Pinch that one off, right? It's like you'd die quick on the operating table. A doctor's supposed to be in there with the tools and the knowledge and the education to perform the surgery needed. Doctors can't help hurting when they're outside the room. We can't do our work of, of, bringing sinners to a savior unless we spend time with them. It's better to bring people to Jesus than to point them to Jesus. 
hardware stores have discovered, you know, you can either just say it's on aisle nine, you know, down, midway down. Aisle 35 is where you find the screws. Just go down there, and then there's a little box halfway. No, they walk you there. And they go, it's right here. Because these stores are so huge, you couldn't have found it otherwise. How about a firefighter? Imagine, you know, it's like telling a firefighter, you can put the fire out, but you have to run away from it. Huh? Firefighters suit up and run into the flames to save lives. And Jesus is trying to help the Pharisees see this with this illustration of a surgeon. I don't know if any of you saw the previews for the movie, the movie uh, put out by Samaritan's Purse. It came out at select theaters or whatever in March called Facing the Darkness. But I remember watching the preview for this and just being speechless because it was about the doctors who got Ebola by serving those in the Ebola crisis and how they kept serving even though they knew the risks involved. And some of them thinking they were going to lose their lives when they started getting Ebola themselves, but their lives were spared. They were saved. And you look at the courage they had to go into the mess, like life-threatening mess. How powerful is what Jesus is challenging us here to do. And it's as simple as a table. Grace turns the world of the religious people upside down and makes the high positions that the spiritually religious people feel fall to the ground. And they wanted to hold their positions. There was this great tension. Grace flips it right side up, and all you have to do is follow Jesus. Pretty simple, right? Everyone's trying to find life to the full. We have opportunity to eat a meal with them and share what that looks like. They may not ask, what must I do to be saved? You just prayed for the food. Lead me, thy leader. You know, they might not say that when you're having a burger or salad if you eat healthy. But they may say, like, tell me about your journey. Talk to me about what's going on with you. I had that opportunity this week, had a meal with somebody, and they're just like, how in the world did you ever become a pastor? I love sharing my story and watching it touch somebody's life. And that's what Jesus is challenging us to do here. Religion wants a checklist. Jesus just wants us to befriend people and have relationships with others and watch the beauty of faith come out of that relationship. He offers us true salvation through his grace. We're welcome to God's feast. And when we don't measure up, we're not condemned. Instead of condoning us or condemning us I should say our God is commanding us to come and eat at the table salvation's found through Jesus it's beautiful so thought three Jesus grace crashes the party Jesus grace crashes our party two worlds are colliding with Levi's party his friends the others at the party, and the righteous at the party. Jesus comes crashing into the Pharisees' world of self-reliance, superiority, pride, hypocrisy, self-justification, and he carries a message of grace, which is way too broad for them. 
Luke 6.11 says that this, the enemies of Jesus were wild with rage and began to discuss what to do with him. I mean, he enraged the religious people through whom he ate meals with. Jesus got himself killed because of the way he ate. Isn't that crazy to think? The Son of God was put on a cross because of who he ate with. It's a big part of it. When Jesus eats with Levi and his guests, the message is very, very clear. Jesus has come for all people, people on the margins, people at the center of culture, people who've got mess in their lives, people who are ordinary, people who are just like you and me. Jesus has come for you. The only people left out of those who think The the only people who are left out is ultimately those who think they don't need God in this scenario. Like they're literally denying that they have a need for God because they've already checked their self-realization of religious laws. The religious end up being left out. And it's crazy to see this happen reading from our perspective. God is not discriminate. He does not show favoritism. He chooses the wrong sort of people, we would probably say. He invites everyone to his great party, and we have an opportunity to embrace that invitation. Psalm 71, 1 through 3 says it this way. Lord, I have come to you for protection. Don't let me be disgraced. Save me and rescue me, for you do what is right. Turn your ear to listen to me, And set me free. Be my rock of safety where I can always hide. Give me the order to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. Like that cry, don't let me be disgraced. Jesus is the answer of that. Because I guarantee these people at Levi's party, constantly in the presence of the Pharisees, felt disgraced. And I don't know where you're at. Maybe Jesus is crashing the party in your world too. And maybe you are the one looking in the mirror and realizing, okay, I, kind of, I may disgrace people. But maybe you're one who's felt disgraced before. And therefore, you want nothing to do with religion. I don't know where your upbringing has brought you. But where Jesus wants you to discover is that you can have a meal together. That there's unifying power in looking across the table and getting to know one another. Don't let yourself be disgraced anymore and don't disgrace others. The challenge for us today, our action point, is to live in God's grace. That might mean for you that you're going to invite the neighbors over. That you're going to say, hey, why don't you guys come over for dinner? What night works? And just get to know those people, those people, right? That may be tough. Maybe it means that you're going to have to apologize to somebody because you realize you may have been the Pharisee at the table before at Levi's home. And you feel that conviction, oh man, I disgraced somebody. I don't know what conviction God's going to rise up in you, but I would, we would love to know how to pray for you.
the back of your connect card we've got a spot there you can jot for prayer or if you're filling it out on your digital device you can just jot a prayer request because we just want to know what Jesus is stirring in you and how we can pray for you maybe today you came to the table and you're realizing there's grace for me here and I want to grab a hold of it scripture makes it easy just says all we have to do is put our faith in Jesus and like we can be saved we call that here choosing to follow Jesus and man if you're in that place and you just need to cross that line of choosing Jesus today so that you can have grace you don't have to practice you didn't have to come clean there are no perfect people allowed Jesus is saying here it is invite me in I want to wash you as clean as snow is white I want to change your world right side up today through my grace. I want to pray with you. God, I thank you for the opportunity again, as John prayed earlier, to rent this school and to open your scripture and discover something that will move us forward in our week, in our life, that we could practically walk out in our world. And having a meal with people is pretty simple. It's pretty uncomplicated. God, I pray that you would awaken within us. What's the challenge? Why haven't we invited a neighbor over for dinner? Or why have we not enjoyed the company of neighborhood barbecue? Why have we stayed so secluded? Open our eyes and our ears so that we could take the actions of sharing your grace the way you shared it with us. God, maybe someone here is yet to, to embrace you as Lord and Savior of their life. Your grace is here. They're at the table today. We're literally in your presence. And, and I just pray that they would invite you in, that they would simply say, Jesus, I want to choose you as Lord today. I choose to follow you. God, I pray that you would inspire them even today to check that box. I want to discover more about what the next step is. And be baptized in water here in a few weeks. God, I don't know what you're stirring in each of us, but would you be able to allow us to articulate it today so that we can know this week what we can do differently because of your grace, the grace in a meal. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.